Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up on the program, we are going to talk more about the vaccine rollout plan here in BC. Also talking about some new clinics opening up for people who are called COVID-19 long haulers, still dealing with effects of the virus months after the infection. And more fallout after after yesterday's resignation of Canada's Governor General. We're also going to open up the phone lines on that. And some shocking video release by the Vancouver Police Department showing a fight that broke out in a convenience store. Vancouver Police looking for the public's help in finding the person responsible. But first, we are learning more details about the vaccination plan, the rollout plan here in BC. We'll be establishing clinics around at uh, about 172 communities all around British Columbia. They will be set up in March by health authorities in partnership with local communities, municipalities, businesses, volunteers. This is going to be and needs to be an all of BC effort to make sure that we can protect those most vulnerable and then everybody in our communities. As mentioned, we'll also be using mobile sites where necessary and home visits to support those who are unable to go to clinics. That was Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking just a short time ago. Let's bring in Dr. Horatio back. He was on the program earlier this week, adjunct professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at UBC. Thank you so much for coming back on the program. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, What is your response uh, to the plan? And I know the details have just been released, uh, but one of the the things that has been uh, highlighted so far, uh, in addition to what Dr. Bonnie Henry was talking about and the physical rolling out of the vaccination plan, uh, was that it is going to go based by age group. What do you think about that? Um, I think the plan they they, uh, build is is, great, um, and I know that what they mentioned there, I had the opportunity to uh, to to watch the um, um, the press release. Um, they're based on, uh, on science, and I agree that needs to be done. Uh, the only comment that I have is two comments. One comment is related to the what they call a clinical, clinically extremely, uh, uh, you know, uh, people that they have some um, background diseases like uh, diabetes, um, chronic diseases in the lungs, or cystic fibrosis, and they put in the phase three. And phase three is going to be a little down on the road. So in my opinion, these people that all we know is is a long list, so you can probably see in in the news now about the different phases, but I think these people are also very high, you know, the vulnerability is very high. And they claim that all these people also with the age will increase, but there are some diseases that, you know, um, it's, it's understandable that you are, you are, if you are immunosuppressor after a chemotherapy in cancer, so you are at very, very high risk. And the, in my opinion, if I need to do that, I would take probably these people that are in very high risk also, because more than likely they are not going to reach, you know, the 70 or 80 years. And then, um, you know, unfortunately, that's the plan that was done based on the age. But I think that they could have some um, um, flexibility in these groups that they are highly uh, vulnerable. And specifically, those that they are probably not a big population in the, you know, in the, in the province. It's, it's not a, the main population. 
Right, because as the plan is now, the group you're talking about, and that was uh, outlined earlier today as well, uh, people with specific uh, cancers, uh, people with respiratory conditions, so they are now uh, in the queue to get uh, earlier vaccination, but again, not until April. That's correct, yes. So I think they could have some uh, um, flexibility in specific groups or people with sick fibrosis that we know they are highly compromised and uh, not easy for these people. You know, if they get infected, that uh, the out- outcome is, can be very catastrophic, basically. Is it possible that some of the reluctance there is also because the vaccine, being a new vaccine, hasn't been tested on people with chronic conditions? Um, well, I don't think so. Um, and it's true, there's clinical trial, they, were, they didn't take into consideration different groups or diseases because, you know, it's a global emergency. You don't have time to take a, a, this consideration. But they, um, I'm, I'm not sure that was like that. Otherwise, there is no reason why they put in April and not now in February, for example. So uh, we don't know a lot about these diseases. I know We know from a study that was published uh, or mentioned in Israel um, yesterday, basically, that uh, the first dose that was used to vaccinate the population that was not as effective as Pfizer stated and I think it's because they include all the group in the population you know people with diabetes all these uh, background diseases and that's the reason may not be effective for all the groups as well and do you when you look at this as well does it make sense as far as as the rolling out and this is based obviously on the two vaccines that have been approved the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine uh, is it is it possible do you think that the, this is a plan uh, that uh, is under delivering on purpose because if we get the AstraZeneca on as well we are going to have a lot more vaccine that is true but i think what they base in what they, and they mentioned there as well is what we have now we don't know when AstraZeneca will be approved until you will start to get that and can be, you know, months down the road. But uh, what they did is based on supplies of Pfizer and Moderna, basically. What, mm-hmm. And they claim that is that what we have now. When we will have AstraZeneca slash Johnson & Johnson, maybe we will start to vaccinate and jump the groups more and more because they are more easy, uh, sorry, they are easier to to a store and uh, deliver as well. As Johnson & Johnson need only one shot, so that's very convenient. But we don't know when we will get that. Uh, do you think there will be any issue with the fact that we aren't going to be vaccinating people under the age of 18? Uh, great. <laughs> well, we, know, we don't know. That, that's the answer. So I, I don't think it will be an issue. The problem is that that was not tested. So we don't know what will be the, 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 the side effects. Since this population is very healthy compared to older population, I don't see any issue with that, except those cases that they have some background, again, you know, suppressed specific uh, diseases like the Crohn's disease or uh, all these type of diseases that are very uh, common in, in, young, uh, uh, in the young population. So these people definitely, or people with leukemia and you know, kids with all these uh, rare diseases, so definitely uh, I'm a... a excluding that okay but in general the population of kids is very is very healthy the problem is what they can transmit you know right. they get to school they go home and they have the grandparents they have their parents and then that's a problem as well yeah right so and i guess the thinking there would be even then if that younger group is transmitting they're not likely to get as sick but if the older groups are all vaccinated then we don't have to worry too much about the younger groups still transmitting because it's not going to be transmitting to the older group that's correct
Yeah. Uh, anything else in the plan stick out to you as a, as a good thing, bad thing, anything sticking out? No, I think it was a great plan and, you know, uh, makes a, a lot of sense because the problem is the availability. If we had, you know, all the those we need, we could finish everything already. But uh, uh, they, I think they took into consideration all the potential issues, you know, rural uh, areas, remote areas, indigenous areas, and all the groups that they were very well uh, uh, waved in the, in, the, in the faces. Um, yeah, so the only thing that I, I would expect I was expecting basically that I would mention is to needs to be a, 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 in the population that is vaccinated the um, responsibility that even if you are if you are vaccinated you have to continue with the guidelines. I expect that a lot of people and a lot is not a, too scientific but a group in the population will say oh you know what I'm vaccinated I cannot be sick I don't use the mask I don't respect the two meters and that needs to be introduce a very strong in the society that even if you get the vaccine, it doesn't mean that you don't need to take care of the um, guidelines of the public health. Right. And this might seem like a ridiculous question, but if you are vaccinated, can you still transmit the disease? That's correct. Right. So that's why you have to keep up with the guidelines. Exactly. Exactly. So we have to keep. And the, the point will be when we see that most of the population, the, the cases are going down. And, uh, you know, you can see that there are less and less uh, transmissibility in the population or we have a therapy. Now will be that that time will be the point that we can basically say, OK, you know what, start to uh, uh, don't use the two meters. And I think that will be slowly, slowly all these guidelines just to make sure that, you know, if you uh, uh, abolish all of them, suddenly will it may happen something wrong. So that will do, you know, like uh, uh, in steps, I guess. All right. Uh, Dr. Bach, we'll leave it there. Thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you so much and stay safe. Well, Vancouver police have released some surveillance video and it shows a man in a store in Vancouver not wearing a mask and then getting into a fight with others in the store. Releasing this video, trying to get some help from the public to find uh, the person in the video. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Constable Tanya Visenton, Vancouver Police Media Relations Officer. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's a disturbing video to watch to see how things unfold. Can you kind of explain what happens? Yeah, so this happened back in December, uh, December 17th to be exact, and um, the suspect had walked into the store. He was also carrying a small dog with him, and he wasn't wearing a mask. So when the store manager asked him to put the mask on, he allegedly spat on the store manager, all while yelling profanities at him. So a witness in the store did tell police that after that, um, the two men got involved in a physical altercation, um, and the, the store manager ended up having a, a head injury. Or a, a cut to his head, which resulted in him bleeding from the head. And I'm assuming the guy that spat and did this and had the dog then left the store? Yeah, he, he eventually did leave the store after all this occurred. Um, unfortunately, police weren't able to locate him, and so now we're asking for the public's help. And in something like this, I mean, that's a horrible thing to have happen anytime. But when we're dealing with a pandemic as well, spitting on somebody is just awful. Oh, for sure. I mean, this isn't, I, I can appreciate that this is a new situation. This is something we've never been in, but at the same time, it's not new to date. This is, we're almost hitting a year now that this has been going on. Uh, this whole mask policy is now um, policy. It's it's a mandate by a provincial health officer, and this is something that we um, 
all need to adhere to anytime we're inside an indoor public space. And if you don't do that, it's uh, you can be fined up to $230. So would this individual, if he is caught, based on the evidence that you have in the surveillance video, would he face those fines under the COVID-19 orders as well? Uh, for sure he can, and but we're more looking at the more serious charges of, of assault as he did assault the uh, the store manager. Uh, so this happened uh, December 17th. This was the 7-Eleven near Alma and West 10th Avenue. Uh, are you hopeful that we're dealing with somebody here who has a dog? So maybe he's been in the community. You would think maybe he has to walk his dog and he's if he lives in that community, uh, people might recognize him and be able to help out investigators. Yeah, for sure. We always have such good help. Anytime we put out a public plea, um, the public is really uh, awesome at uh, giving us that info and and coming to us. And in this case, we also do want to speak to him. I mean, we only do have one side of the story. We have our security footage that shows the incident, but we never spoke to the the suspect. So we do want to speak to him as well. So if he is listening and if he does see his photo uh, today on media, that please call us. Are you seeing any kind of increase in altercations based on the fact that someone's not wearing a mask and someone asks them to? Or are you seeing an increase in that type of uh, fighting? You know, I, I don't have like hard numbers, but, you know, anecdotally, this is something that we know is going on. We know there's those defiant people out there. We know that people are getting into these situations with one another. We know it's a hard time. Everyone's frustrated. Everyone from both sides of the, of the story here are frustrated, but it has come to down to this is a mandate. So whether you uh, want to or not, or whether you believe it or not, you need to wear a mask when you're in an indoor public space. If you don't want to do that, then don't go into uh, establishments that require you to wear a mask. It's as simple as that. All right. Uh, Constable, we asked you on to, to talk about that. And then uh, before the show started, another release came out from uh, Vancouver Police. I just wanted to ask you quickly as well, uh, because this is, I imagine, uh, people will want to look out for this as well. Uh, you've issued a news release as well saying a 34-year-old woman who's wanted on some pretty serious allegations uh, has disappeared. Yeah, right. So we we did put out a, a, a pl- another plea today. It's uh, Miss Nicole Edwards. She is a 34 year old woman who is had breached her bail conditions and is now wanted Canada wide. So uh, earlier or middle of last year in May, she did uh, allegedly commit uh, a gruesome, violent, heinous uh, assault in Oppenheimer Park. Uh, she was charged with multiple sexual and uh, weapon offenses. Um, you know, fast forward to August, she did go missing then. We were able to get her from, again, a public plea. Someone in a liquor store did see her, and they called us right away, and we were able to get her back in custody. Unfortunately, um, this past December, courts have deemed her um, appropriate to be released back into a halfway house. Uh, she now breached her conditions, didn't return to her halfway house, and didn't see her uh, bail supervisor. Therefore, she is in breach, and we need to get her back in custody. All right. Uh, people can go uh, to the website, and I think her picture is on our website as well. Constable, thanks sure. so much for your time today. Appreciate no it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. So we are going to talk a bit more about the different variants of COVID-19. What do we need to watch out for for those travel plans in light of the vaccine rollout plans that we now know about? Right now, though, we want to talk about some new clinics that are opening up in Vancouver and Surrey. And these are for COVID-19 long haulers, so people who months so after having the virus, having recovered, still have some effects of COVID-19. Uh, one One of the people in this province that can fall into that group is Kyla Lee, who joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. We normally talk to you about things that are law-related, <laughs> about driving, about uh, court challenges and decisions when it comes to distracted driving. Uh, but today, very, very different. We wanted to talk to you about COVID-19. You were one of the first people we talked to that had the virus. How are you now as far as any long-lasting effects? I still get um, what I call them flare-ups of of symptoms where basically everything comes back um, for a period of time, usually lasts about 10 days, and then it goes away just as suddenly as it came. That's got to be disruptive, though. It is really disruptive because every time that happens, um, I can't leave the house because, you know, as soon as you have a fever or you have respiratory symptoms, you have to isolate and you have to wait before they um, before they're gone, before you can leave. Um, I've had so many COVID tests um, to try and, you know, rule out that I've been infected again each time they come back negative. It's it's incredibly frustrating. I, I can only imagine. And, and that's an interesting part, too, because when you have the symptoms, then do you have to go and get tested every time to make sure it's not that you've been reinfected? I don't have to. Um, and I haven't every single time because I've the test is not fun. I'm sure <laughs> anyone out there has had one knows. Um, and so I avoid doing it unless I've had a lot of contact with other people because my job, you know, takes me out into the public often. Um, if I've been in a, a more of a high contact week leading up to getting sick, then I think, okay, I'm going to go get another test and, and get this investigated for sure. And have health officials given you any indication, or I'm guessing because we still don't know everything about this virus, how long you might have to deal or be dealing? with these flare-ups? No, nobody knows anything. I've been uh, sent to the ER because after the test comes back negative, uh, then I call public health and ask them what I should do. And they say, oh, we think you should go to the ER. So I go to the ER, I get seen by a doctor, I have all of these tests, there's nothing wrong with me on paper. Um, and they send me home. Um, finally, thankfully, I'm, I'm being um, uh, seen by some specialists. Um, and having more investigation done into why this is happening in my body. And so are you part of the clinics that were announced as far as these clinics are also doing exactly that, allowing for specialists to get involved and for health officials to try and figure out why it is some people with COVID-19 have these long-lasting effects? I'm not part of the clinics. I suspect I'll probably end up part of them. But right now I'm just in the process of ruling every other possible issue out. Um, so things like, like lupus and autoimmune disorders. And I've had um, most of my blood taken out of my body at this point to try and figure out, you know, make sure it's not anything else. And when you think back to when you first got this, and I remember talking to you, I think just a few days after you'd been in the airport system, and it's hard to believe that it was so long ago, uh, because everything seemed so new and we didn't know anything about it. But when you think back to that, did you ever think that you'd still be talking about it and dealing with these health effects today? No, I thought, you know, certainly by January, things would be back to normal, that we would have vaccines or we would have some type of herd immunity in place or we'd all be, you know, living very comfortably with restrictions. I didn't think we'd be where we are today. And I didn't think that I, you know, I thought maybe I was a little bit lucky because I was going to have a mild case and have some immunity and never have to deal with it again. Yeah, which I think for anybody that gets it, that's what you hope for. Yeah, and I remember saying, you know, I feel a bit like a superhero after I was better because I'm immune, but apparently not. <laughs> no. Um, what does this mean for you then and vaccinations? 
I have not been told any clear information about how this is going to affect me for vaccinations. Based on the information that came out today, I don't think I'm going to have to think about it until around July, um, just based on my age. But And hopefully by then we'll know some more information for people like me and whether we need to get vaccinated and whether the vaccine could negatively impact us. Right. And still so many questions. Uh, have you thought about or have you gotten or gone, I, I guess you would have to go out of province, I think, to do this, uh, but to get an antibody test? I have thought about it. And I did have someone from Twitter reach out and send me one of the like private antibody tests that you can purchase. They're not very reliable, though. Right. Um, and I have thought about going and getting one. Um, I was kind of hoping things would be better um, now so that I could travel to the U.S. uh, They're easy to get there, but uh, it's not looking likely. (laughs) No. Uh, In the meantime, what do you say to people? Because still, even at this point, uh, where I think we're a year from when we had the first case in B.C., uh, for people who still aren't taking things seriously. I mean, get your head together and, and do the right thing, because you know, you you might think that you'll be fine, but you could end up being a person like me who is getting sick uh, almost every 45 days, um, exhausted and tired and having difficulty breathing and having fevers that won't go away and wondering what's going on and not knowing if it's ever going to end. And you don't want to live like that. I don't like living like this and I don't want anybody else to have to go through this either. When you aren't having a flare up, do you feel fine or do you do you still feel tired or do you notice any difference outside of the flare ups? Uh, from my pre-COVID um, self, I am a lot more fatigued. I I have trouble um, just in the day, just staying awake and, and finding the energy to get things done. I just feel kind of like somebody turned my volume down. Hmm. Well, I'm happy that you are, are still talking about it and getting that message out. Uh, it's so, so unfortunate that you're still having to deal with this. Uh, but Kyla, I hope the clinics also lead to more information and better understanding and can help people who are long haulers uh, like you. Uh, in the meantime, thank you again so much for coming on the show and uh, stay safe. Thank you for having me. Well, as expected earlier today during media availability, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was asked about the resignation of Canada's Governor-General. He is not apologizing for his decision to appoint now former Governor-General Julie Payette. That follows that scathing report that led to the resignation. All of this started up when a publication of a CBC News article came to light last summer. That publication detailed allegations from multiple sources that Payette fostered a toxic, harassing work environment. And since then, several employees have spoken with Global News. Uh, they've asked to speak on a condition of anonymity, saying that they too were yelled at and publicly humiliated under the watch of Julie Payette. So what does all of this mean? Let's bring in Dr. Gerald Beyer, Associate Professor at the Department of Political Science at UBC. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, what is your take on how things have unfolded? Well, um, I mean, it is a, it's a very touchy <laughs> issue in a sense. I mean, we are thinking about, uh, you know, the person who nominally holds uh, most of our Constitution's power in terms of uh, lawmaking uh, and the rest in Canada, the Governor General. And, and we're in the midst of a minority parliament where the powers of a Governor General become more important. But at the same time, What's clearly going on is, you know, workplace standards in the 21st century uh, are not uh, being uh, met up to. And, and so 
uh, you know, the people who work with the governor general, the people who work uh, you know, for the governor general are entitled to a, a safe and, uh, and good workplace. And, and there's obviously lots of evidence uh, that reporters have been gathering that, uh, that it hasn't been that. So we're not in a crisis, but at the same time, uh, there's clearly a need to, to be very careful about who gets appointed to these jobs. Uh, and uh, it's also, you know, we, we need to do something about it so that we can make sure going forward uh, they can have a bit more confidence uh, that the person who's there is, is suited to the role. Well, and a lot of talk uh, has focused on the vetting process and the fact that mm-hmm. Justin Trudeau did away with the independent committee, which would have been in charge of vetting and would have caught things, I think we can all agree, would have caught things in Julie Payette's past that would have made her not a candidate for governor general uh, and went ahead with the appointment. Does this show that we need to bring back that independent committee? Well, I mean, I, I do think so. I think that um, it's it's a it's a strange choice that uh, they, they did get rid of it because um, the Trudeau government has been more enthusiastic about similar kinds of uh, of screening uh, for Supreme Court justices for senators, right? So they've had those kinds of uh, committees in place uh, to do that work. Uh, I don't know if it was just a reaction to the fact that uh, Harper introduced uh, the, the vice regal uh, appointment committee or, you know, vetting uh, kind of process and, and they're going to do things differently uh, or, uh, you know, what other motivations in terms of, uh, you know, this is a representative of Canada. And so uh, sometimes a lot of those things take uh, the front seat, right, that, uh, you know, a francophone woman is more important than maybe uh, some of the qualifications that she may have had. And that's not to say that we shouldn't worry about all those kind of bits of representation, uh, but that, you know, you want to still screen people for uh, their suitability for the job as a manager because they're still in charge of the staff and all the rest. And so I think uh, bringing a committee like that back is is probably necessary. Uh, and uh, and in looking at that too, I mean, there many have made this uh, argument or, or this observation as well that it that it wouldn't have taken a detective agency to look into <laughs> Julie Payette's past, to look at some of the reports from when uh, she had a leadership role at the Montreal Science Center, from uh, accusations uh, that granted were dropped uh, of assault and an accident uh, that uh, a fatal car accident. I, I mean, there were so many things that were red flags. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that. I mean, that's what. I mean, we, we don't really want to uh, put all of the decision-making power, uh, you know, for appointments of senators, for appointment of Supreme Court justices, for appointments of a governor general into a committee uh, that doesn't have some of that political accountability. But at the same time, what we can count on those kinds of committees doing is exactly what you just suggested. They can see the red flags clearly uh, and they can publicly acknowledge those, right, uh, to sort of uh, be advisory to uh, the prime minister. Ultimately, um, you know, maybe a committee would have seen those things, said it to the prime minister, and the prime minister would have said, you know what, I see that. She tells me a different story. I'm okay with that. That's prime ministerial judgment, right? We should be able uh, to, to make that, to let that happen, and, and then they have to wear it. In this case, the prime minister has to wear it entirely because uh, he didn't allow somebody else to take a, a look. It, it's clear that either an oversight on the part of the government of the day uh, or a looking the other way went on, uh, and so, you know, that's part of why, uh, you know, it's a, it's a controversial case right now because he's, he's in that position and, and ultimately had to ask for her resignation. And he did. It was his appointment. He's not apologizing. He was asked earlier today if he would apologize and he didn't. Do you think he should? 
Um, I mean, I think if anybody's owed an apology, it's the people who faced a really terrible workplace, right? I mean, I think at least initially, uh, those are the people who uh, are owed an apology that, uh, you know, that A, that they put somebody in the job uh, who uh, obviously was unsuited to it in in terms of that kind of temperament. Um, I, I mean, I do think we heard public criticism as well about the governor general, just in terms of her kind of enthusiasm for the job. Um, you know, the, the sorts of things that governor generals normally do was not something that Julia Payette seemed all that interested in doing, uh, you know, putting off ceremonies, uh, you know, the kinds of things that, uh, you know, that the job is all about, right? The willing, willingness to, to do those things. Uh, I think someone said we need to hire a governor general who likes interacting with people. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's important. And, and to some degree, it seems like that wasn't entirely her personality. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, somebody has to be 100% bubbly all the time. But, you know, if you're hired for a ceremonial job, it should be ready to, to, to uh, you know, some of that stuff can be kind of boring in the long run, but you have to like it. Uh, and uh, I think that's true of a lot of, uh, you know, high profile positions in, um, in, in business and in government. Uh, that people have to have a certain kind of temperament to want to do it. And it didn't seem like that was hers. But I think the more disturbing thing, of course, is the way they were treating people who who were there to help her do her job. And there's been a lot of talk as well about the pension that comes with that job. And uh, again, dealing with a resignation, which we don't normally deal with, and whether or not the governor general position should still get that pension, uh, given the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those things. <laughs> it's sort of uh, going to have to be the price of um, uh, of, of getting that resignation, I think, in a sense. I mean, A, uh, people who do, uh, you know, interrupt their careers uh, to to do things like uh, serve in some of those roles. And I, I would put politicians uh, actually in, in the same category. Uh, we don't want to discourage good people from doing these kinds of things by meaning by making it something only somebody who can really afford to do it uh, does. Uh, and, and so I, I think you know that that should still be regarded as the kind of level of public service that it is, um, and, and and you know justly rewarded. Uh, I think people will say, well, somebody who is really bad at it should they get their pension? I mean, it, you can point to lots of examples in the corporate world where the same thing happens. Uh, and so I know, of course, it's public dollars, and that that makes us a little bit more um, uh, a little bit more careful about it, a little bit more likely to get upset about it. But um, I wouldn't want to totally undermine uh, the, the kinds of incentives and uh, the kinds of you know, rewards that people are, should be entitled to just because of one bad case. And so we, you know, uh, so there's lots of good examples of former governors general who are getting their pension, who did a great job uh, and have still, uh, you know, uh, proudly represented Canada and continue to be forces for, for good uh, in the country. Yeah, I think that you summarized it perfectly, saying that it's the price of the resignation. Uh, Dr. Byer, we'll have to leave it there for today, but thanks so much for your time. That's my pleasure. Thanks. Uh, the, the one wrench in the spanner in the works is the fact that we are now seeing transmission of variants across uh, the world. Um, some of these make the virus more transmissible to others. So the UK variant in particular, we've, we've seen uh, a number of cases here, all of them travel-related. We've seen a couple of cases of the South African variant, which are not yet travel not associated with travel that we can tell. So those are concerning. If we start to see rapid increase again, there's that potential for that with these variants. 
That was Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking earlier today about the variants that have been found in the UK and some other places that we're now learning could be more deadly than others. Let's bring in Jason Tetro, scientist, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Jason, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Great to be joining you. I I think people are concerned. On the one hand, happy to know in BC a little bit more about how vaccinations are going to be rolled out in this province over the next few months, but also very concerned Mm. about the variants. Yeah, I mean, uh, we really should be focusing on the vaccine because uh, even with variants that are going around, and I mean, this happens every single time with every single virus. No one should be uh, confused or, 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 or worried that variants exist. Um, But a vaccine is really what we need, and it's been designed in such a way that it can be resistant to variants, and even testing that's being done uh, is showing that it, uh, it definitely can resist the variants and get rid of them and protect you and keep you safe. Right, because so when we hear about variants that are more deadly or that are passed along easier, more contagious, what do we take from that? Well, what it means is that A virus will eventually find a way to improve what is known as its fitness. And that just means that it can, you know, infect easier, uh, transmit easier, and sometimes increase the viral load in the person. Now, granted, um, when that happens, people might think, oh, my goodness, well, this could potentially mean that, uh, you know, it could lead to more severe infection or it could increase the chances of death. And what we've seen is that for the most part, these variants essentially are not doing that to any great extent. Now, we're getting a little bit more data, especially out of the UK, that is showing that, well, variants could possibly make it a little more tougher on you because they are making that more more virus inside of you. But overall, it doesn't seem to be affecting any one population greater than the other. So it doesn't matter uh, across the scale. Uh, If you get the variant, you might have a harder time than if you had sort of the original strains that came in uh, back in March. And we are being told, and you touched on this, uh, that the good news is the vaccine, whichever one we're talking about, does seem to work against the variants. Yeah, and that was a design that uh, came out from some testing uh, done very, very early on. You see, initially, the whole idea was to protect against a little piece of the virus and then be prepared to change the nature of that vaccine every single year, much like we do with the flu. But because variants were actually coming faster than we had expected, Uh, they decided, you know what, let's not play any games here. Let's just give the immune system a giant piece of the virus. And so they gave it the entire spike protein. It's called the um, uh, pre-fusion whole spike protein. And as a result of that, the immune system has the ability to recognize a number of different options in order to be able to prevent infection. And so whether you have one, two, five variations or mutations in a variant, and, and they exist, it's not going to stop the, uh, the vaccine from being able to protect you. We may lose a little bit of efficacy, but I mean, when we're starting at 95%, that's, that's, that's really good. <laughs> it is a good number. Now, I'm afraid, though, that you've scared people by saying a big piece of the virus. Well, okay. So have, have you seen a picture of the virus? I mean, if you yes. haven't, where have you been? Rock? <laughs> um, those nubby bits on the outside, uh, that's the spike protein. Um, and the reason that they look so large is because they are so large. 
Um, so what happens is when the mRNA uh, is put into your cells, it asks permission, it always asks permission to create this spike protein. And then when it does so, it actually creates this very, very giant uh piece of protein that the body can then recognize. And as the immune system recognizes different pieces of it, it starts to memorize it. And then when you get that booster, whether it be, you know, three weeks, four weeks or six weeks, uh, your immune system comes back and say, hey, I recognize you or I recognize you and I recognize you. And all of a sudden, it's like uh, Oprah in a car, right? (laughs) It's like you get an immune response, you get an immune response, you get an immune response. And that's how it protects you. (laughs) <laughs> that is uh, that is a good way uh, of describing it and explaining it. Um, what do you think <laughs> about BC's vaccination plan that they've decided to go f- fully based on age? It's not breaking down frontline workers, teachers, paramedics, firefighters, police. It's going with age groups and getting people through the system that way. Uh, it really comes down to one big factor, and that is when we start having widespread community uh, distribution of the virus. In other words, there's transmission absolutely everywhere. And we're seeing this pretty much all across uh, the province and many other provinces. What you realize is, okay, the first thing we need to do is figure out how we're going to be able to shift the curve so that if it's focused on the younger individuals and away from the older individuals. And that's you do that by age. And so that's really why we want to be doing this. Um, what is very interesting, and, uh, you know, we've heard about the ICSs for the, uh, the young children under 10 years of age. We've heard about, uh, you know, schools being a transmission factor in places like Quebec. That's because the amount of spread in the community gets to a point where children become vectors. The thing is, is that with all of the restrictions that have been happening and the reduction of the cases, that no longer comes into play. And so we can actually focus on um, making sure that the elderly are safe and knowing that as long as we're doing the ABCs of prevention, we can make sure that the younger generations are also protected. And then eventually, as the vaccine is distributed and we go down the age groups, down to 18 or it's down even down to 16, then we know that we'll hit that herd immunity or or what I call elimination threshold so that anyone who didn't get a vaccine will also be protected, essentially what we call ring vaccination concepts. Uh, Do you think it's odd that BC is vaccinating only to 18, even though the Pfizer vaccine has been tested as low as 16? So... This goes back to something that happened during the FDA meetings, believe it or not, Uh, when there were discussions about whether or not we could extrapolate from 18 down to 16. um, It was not universally accepted that we could do that. And so in that light, it would probably be better to make sure that we're focusing on what the monograph states, essentially the document that was um, approved by Health Canada in terms of the ages. I mean, we're already going away from it with respect to the second dose, (laughs) which is still tenuous enough. I don't think we really want to be sort of changing the parameters for any of the other uh, factors that are involved in how this vaccine should be distributed. We are continuing now with Jason Tetro, scientist, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Your questions about the variants of the COVID-19 virus on the vaccine rollout. Any question you might have for Jason, he has agreed to stick with us till the bottom of the hour. Let's go to those questions. And Don is on the line. Don, what are your thoughts? Yeah, hi, Jill. I'm I'm a little bit confused of the word variant. Uh, I've been... I recall in the past that we commonly associated this word as a mutation. So is there a difference between the word variant and mutation? 
Yes, there is a very minor uh, uh, difference, and that is a mutation is actually something that happens inside the genetic material. A variant is actually the whole virus with that mutation in it. And you can have numerous mutations within the same variant. All right. Uh, Don, thanks for the phone call. Good question. Let's go to Bill. Bill, what's your question? My question is this. uh, By the way, I'm very impressed with your guest. They explained uh, many things very good. That's why we keep asking him back. It's not what it is. (laughs) Ask him uh, what I'm concerned about is uh, the rapid testing and that uh, if he knows anything about rapid testing. For example, uh, just to give you an example, I bought a some rapid testing, uh, and we use that as a family, as our bubble, and it's been very effective. In fact, we had one person leave the bubble and come back in and got tested, and they they were tested positive, so we were able to protect ourselves. Why were these not used with long-term care homes? You could have saved a lot of lives, but nobody seemed to care about those lives. All right, Bill, thanks for the question. And I'm actually glad you brought that up and Jason can weigh in on that because that is an ongoing question that we have all of these rapid tests that are sitting in storage. Long-term care homes have been calling for them, but it's not something that's being done in this province. Yeah, and the reason is is because we still haven't tested them per- perfectly, so we still don't know exactly what is happening with the testing and how accurate they are. Um, I used to work in diagnostic testing, so it's one of those really tricky things where if you know that it's going to be effective, then you can use it as a single standalone, which is what we're all hoping to do. However, if you're not so specific uh, on the ability to you know, detect it and also sensitive enough to detect a low enough level, then what's going to have to happen is it becomes part of an algorithm where you have to do a secondary type of testing. And so what we do is we see these uh, rapid tests essentially being used and then saying if you get a positive, then you have to confirm with a nucleic acid test or an NAT. Um, it's hard to do that when you're at the home. Now, that's all sort of the official aspects of it. But just like a pregnancy test, if you want to be able to do this to protect yourselves and you have the ability to purchase them, I mean, it's definitely one way to give you some confidence that you are doing everything right. You're following the ABCs and you're doing everything you can to protect you and your loved ones. Uh, And that's been one of the arguments is that they are being used, uh, say, on film sets uh, for sporting events. They are being used in that scenario. And even if it was only 70 percent effective, wouldn't that still stop cases of COVID getting into long term care? Yeah, and that's really the case where uh, we happen to be at the moment is when you have widespread community transmission like we've been seeing, even if you have um, a hint that you could be actually detecting a case so that you can prevent that person from coming in, that's really going to be helpful. Where the big problem lies in this is one of the issues with uh, nursing homes and long-term care facilities is that one case that enters inside of of a home could rapidly turn into a massive outbreak. And we've actually heard about this very recently with one variant that got in in Ontario and essentially spread out through the whole entire uh, facility. So it's better to be able to be confident in what you are using, even though if you aren't confident it might help, you want to be as, as, as confident as possible that you are essentially getting a positive correct. Makes sense. Uh, This was something that came up earlier today, and I get this question quite often, and I think you will be able to definitively tell us this. Uh, Once you get the vaccine and you are protected yourself, you are protected against this virus, can you Mm -hmm. still pass it on to somebody else? Okay, so... 
first off, the, the vaccine itself doesn't give you the virus. Uh, so that's the first thing. Secondly, you get the first shot. In the first week to two weeks, your body is developing an immune response. And what that means is that if a virus happens to creep in, in the meantime, it may still end up leading to an infection or enough viral load to be able to spread to somebody else. After the two weeks, we start to see an increase in the ability of the immune system to stop the virus before it reaches a level that can be transmitted to other people. Now, is it enough? We're not sure. We, we still think you can. After the second shot, a week after the second shot, not just afterwards, but a week afterwards, you should have a strong enough immune response that if you are exposed to the virus, it will still go inside of you. It will still replicate a little bit, but the immune system will come in and stop it before it gets to a high enough level that will be passed on to somebody else. And this is actually work that's been done in primates and we're sort of extrapolating. So it's a six week process. And as soon as you get the vaccine, that process begins but you can't really think of yourself as not spreadable in terms of COVID for at least those first six weeks. All right, that makes sense. But then after the six weeks, it's not as though you could be in an environment where you're exposed to the virus, you don't get it, but you're still passing it on. And that's where we are at in terms of trying to determine what is the viral load of individuals who get the virus after they've had the or a week after they've had the second shot at the end of that six weeks. So far, it is looking as if the amount that you will produce inside your body is not enough to pass on to somebody else. That's what it's looking like. I think it's going to be um, confirmed. And secondly, what ends up happening is that's where this idea of herd immunity comes in or what I call elimination threshold. Because if I've got the vaccine and I'm six weeks in and you got the vaccine and you're six weeks in and the person across the street has the vaccine and that person is six weeks in, then it doesn't matter how many times we put the virus between us. Right. That's what we want to get to. Exactly. So until we've reached that elimination threshold, and I'm sure that Dr. Henry will be the first one to tell you this, um, we continue using masks, we continue social distancing, and we continue doing the ABCs so that we stay uh, protected and we're preventing the spread. And if you do want to go with those, um, you know, at-home tests, it's going to give you help, but don't make, don't let it give you 100% confidence, at least not at this stage. All right. Uh, we only have a minute left, but Jamie has a question. So quickly, Jamie, what's your question? Yes, I'm pretty disappointed in the vaccine rollout, uh, considering Canada has biggest portfolio in the portfolio portfolio mm -hmm. in the world and like my father passed away from covid in langley lodge in may and i'm pretty skeptical on if i'll even get the shot this year the way they keep postponing and delaying things and i have no faith in dr henry or adrian dix at all mm -hmm. let me just tell you something very quickly it's a blip OK, Pfizer had to upgrade their facility because downstream factories and plants didn't come through. So they had no choice. That blip ended up actually costing us two weeks worth of high numbers of virus uh, vaccine levels. As of the beginning of February, we're going to be getting 80,000 a week from Pfizer and we're going to get the usual three week of 230,000 from Moderna. We need the AstraZeneca. I totally agree with that. But don't lose faith in the vaccine. These rollouts happen. Sometimes hiccups happen, but we're going to get there. And yes, by the by the fall, I still predict that we're going to be at the end of this pandemic and, and we can finally start thinking about getting back to, well, a new kind of normal.